0: Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode one of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. For this first episode, it might be helpful to understand what we're trying to accomplish, introduce who we are, lay some ground rules for the rest of the series. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is contribute to dialogue that will help produce racial harmony. We know that there are still terribly dark, hateful, and racist people in the world, but our goal isn't necessarily to talk to them. The people we're trying to reach are the ones in the center, where we believe there's more ignorance than animus, where their perplexion has led to disengagement on the topic. We want to talk about this stuff credibly and intelligently, but it's important you know who we are, complex people with diverse backgrounds who are bringing our individual perspectives to the conversation. So that's our personal context. I think that context is what's currently missing from this greater dialogue. If you're getting to know anyone, a potential friend, a potential partner, we learn about each other by starting with those basic biographical markers. What's your name? Where are you from? where did you go to school, if at all? What do you do for a living? This helps me understand you a little bit better just by my generalized knowledge of the norms that occur about where you grew up or where you went to school or what you do. But what happens when that preconception is skewed? I'm from Dallas and since I've been in DC there have been several instances where I've had to correct misconceptions about horses and cowboy boots and actually one of the biggest things that surprises people is just how diverse that part of the country is. So these minor misunderstandings produce tensions because they conflict with what feels right to you. It's what you know. It's what you've been exposed to just like if you've ever had a roommate who loaded the forks in the dishwasher upside down or women if a man leaves the toilet seat up and what happens when we're confronted about these things when your wife or girlfriend approaches you about maybe considering putting the toilet seat down that confrontation however minor probably creates a moment of discomfort you have to evaluate the tone she's asking you the request itself how much extra energy it's going to cost you to retrain your brain to produce a new habit and then ultimately whether that extra energy is worth it And for the sake of harmony especially if you love this person you're no doubt going to try to begin leaving the toilet seat down so that context it's important for harmoniously living but how do we get that context in this dialogue when it comes to racial reconciliation or racial tensions and i think that that's where i feel like i can contribute uh as a journalist my role is to share information so that communities can do a better job of doing what they do and as a journalist i can contribute to that sharing of information in a couple ways I can broadcast it and simply explain what's happening in the community, or I can contextualize it. In the case of race relations, I think the news has done a really good job of broadcasting information. We know about Ferguson, we know about Black Lives Matter, we know about Charlottesville. What we know less about is context around these events. What led to them? What do people mean by Black Lives Matter? And what ways do you mean you're oppressed in 2018? These are important questions for white people to understand in order to know their place in the story. It's their context so Brandon that's my background Uh, what's your excuse me what's your background that's influencing
0: your perspective sure so um, you know I grew up in Virginia I grew up in the country of Virginia really suburban area uh, really rural and uh, it was socially socially segregated and I find myself and I found myself growing up um, as a child that was an overachiever that uh, I had friends that were more white um, when it came to school. Uh, but then socially, when it came to church and where we lived, I lived more around people that are African-American. And so um, my temperament was one where I was too black for the white people and too white for the black people and didn't really know where my place was. And what that ultimately created in me was this uh, this real capacity for building bridges and for developing um, and really designing nuanced Um, kinds of conversations around the topic of race, or social economics, or you name it, um, especially as I went off to... a college that was predominantly white where I had to continue to have these conversations um, where I couldn't be the angry black man um, but I also couldn't be uh, so angry that I was irrelevant and um, and lacking in credibility um, and yet stole owning part of my blackness or owning my blackness totally in my experience as being a black man so unlike Mark a white man from Texas um, I um, have experienced um, certain kinds of racism and been called names and my educational background is that of a social worker and and an entrepreneur and so I I know what it's like to climb through the ranks of business and um, being around people of power and privilege and influence and also what it means to deal with the depravity that black and brown people are going through in this country today so that's really uh, what my background is, personally, but also professionally, and my educational background, um, uh, you know, maybe I'm an expert but on some level, but really, who is an expert on this? And context is really important, and learning how to ask questions and being curious about who I am is really what I'm bringing to this conversation also ask a lot of questions about what's going on in the world about what's going on in the context of race um and what we're really going through in our identities and um when it comes to being misunderstood um, i find that black people are oftentimes misunderstood by white people and white people are oftentimes misunderstood by black people and if we were to um really ask questions about how we personally felt um or when we personally felt misunderstood um, and why i think that would help us have a more constructive dialogue um, along the lines of compassion and empathy we find that we're actually all the same though we have different experiences um, even generationally have had different experiences and um, yeah I think that 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 these are things that that we have to uh, really look at at a deep at a deeper level than we have currently um, where do I feel misunderstood and why um, and I think you know maybe mark as we get started I think that's a good question I'll start by asking you is where have you felt misunderstood as a white man from Texas when it comes to this conversation?
1: Yeah, uh, and I think that's that's great. I think that um, one of the things for me where I've been misunderstood and this is, you know, I started, I introduced myself by talking about stereotypes and so I'm actually gonna live up to one uh, as uh, as I am from Texas um, I'm a gun owner uh, I've been around guns so I've, I've been comfortable around them my grandpa owned them we didn't have any growing up in our house um, but they were still something that I was kind of just meh about uh, they didn't cause me discomfort um, but I was we weren't really necessarily gun enthusiasts um, except maybe my grandfather but um, so I remember very distinctly, you know, around five years ago when Sandy Hook occurred, um, there was all this dialogue and all these things being said about gun owners and about guns specifically, and I, I thought it was interesting because my my perspective was kind of meh. Like I said, um, I didn't really have strong feelings one way or the other. Um, and growing up in a conservative house, growing up Republican, obviously, you know just we kind of land automatically on the side of second amendment so these are things that i kind of began to drill into to mm. to learn about to research you know what are they saying about guns like come on re- fellow republicans you know at the time um what why can't we just engage in this conversation and you know give a little ground when it comes to to uh gun control uh, but once i began researching the topic i i found that um There was a lot of misconceptions about how guns work, um, about how a lot of the gun proposals didn't really even intersect uh, with limp... Excuse me, limiting gun violence or gun deaths, and uh, and so it caused some perplexion in me, and uh, it was bizarre because you know I would start watching news programs where they bring someone on to talk about gun control, or a politician would say something about gun control, or someone would say something about gun owners, and it was just it kind of really hit me at that point that okay they these people just completely misunderstand the gun issue why people own guns in the first place um but then what that triggered in me was a moment of well if these if they are getting it wrong if the news is getting it wrong about me as a gun owner and about people in flyover country you know in the midwest um then what am i misunderstanding about the world and i think that that's what really ultimately caused this this journey in unpacking what what it is that I'm misunderstanding about the world, and um, and it's been really sweet. It's led to a lot of revelations. Um, so I, you know, I don't begrudge that. It's been it's
0: been a really interesting experience. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the whole conversation about you know guns, especially as it's played out in the media, has been very focused on elementary students. Or um, you talk about the school in Florida just recently. You know, um, in the last several months, that went through that mass shooting, and sparked all of this debate and protest around the country it's interesting that when it comes to um, black and brown youth or Chicago um, in these black communities where gun violence has been an issue and what we would call in the 80s and the 90s and even in the present time black on black crime has been um, totally surrounding this idea of gun control and gun violence and yet from the from the institution of American government and social politics, um, where it really takes off is when there are, you know, these really compelling group of white teenagers from Florida talking about gun violence. That's when the conversation actually goes to the next level. Um, But there are Dozens, more than dozens, of organizers and um, people that are doing policy work on the issue of gun violence in Black neighborhoods that has not taken the media attention um, in the way that the Sandy Hook shooting has, or in the way that the uh, that the uh, Florida shooting did. And so, as it relates to this conversation on race, I think mean, this is where one of the misconceptions is. This is where we're misunderstanding this 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 real dialogue is that. Um, Even, Mark, you know, you talking about, you know, like what your misconception was or feel like you were being misunderstood about you as a gun owner um, is the way that I feel misunderstood as a black man. That if I carry a gun, that if I have a gun, that I'm ultimately dangerous. But if you're white and you have a gun, you're not dangerous as in you can be trusted with it. But if I'm black and I have a gun, I can't be trusted with it because I'm savage or I don't have the wisdom for it um, or I'm just part of the problem. I'm part of the systemic problem, what's going on in black communities. And um, and of course, the gun that I have couldn't be legal. I'd have to have gotten it off the street somewhere from someone that, was, uh, uh, that had more of... Of, of a diabolical kind of intention um you know to uh really uh keep this this cycle of black on black violence going um but what if i were just like you what if i were just like a white man who had a concealed to carry license um but especially now with what's going on in the media around police brutality and things of that nature if i have a gun and i have it legally and i'm dangerous and i'm actually more liable to be shot by a police officer if it's showing or if someone can see it and so where do i feel misunderstood asking myself the same question i just asked you as i feel like i'm just not as important in these narratives and these conversations as a as a black man at at times now I think where I live in my experience, if I'm to personalize it, I still have some some measure of privilege. I've never owned a gun. I don't necessarily plan on owning one, though I wouldn't mind owning one. I've shot a gun before. But um, but a lot of the reason why I don't do that is because of the misconception, is, is because I'm afraid of what that means when someone sees me with a gun. And if it's a white person that sees me with a gun, and the fear that's in their eyes, or the uh, skepticism, or the shady eye that I get, um, uh, or even for myself, misunderstanding my own intentions there. Am I buying into the system by having a gun? But yet, equality under the law, I have the right to conceal and carry as well. I have a Second Amendment right that I can exercise as well. I think that this goes into uh, you know areas of these slight little nuanced types of misunderstandings that get so taken out of context um, within the media and the conversations that we have um, around things like gun violence and gun control. Um, so I, I think uh, that another compelling question that, that comes out of this then is, you know, um, why are we drawing conclusions about each other based upon skin color? Why are we drawing um, these character conclusions about each, each other based upon something that we don't even know about each other except skin color? Um, I think it's a really good question because I think it is a character judgment that we're making based on the tone of a person's skin, not necessarily something that's um, valid, you know, um, like if I see you yelling at your wife, then I might be able to say, hey, maybe you are an emotionally abusive person. If that's, if, you know, that's not taken out of context, if I see you do that in a public space, Um, or if I, you know, actually witness you doing a crime of some sort, then I'm making a, a, probably a pretty accurate character judgment or at least you know around safety around my own safety around what's going on with that person um based upon what they're doing um but what what we've been doing in this country for the last 400 years has been making character judgments about people based on something we don't know based on things we don't see based upon things um that that we have no context for at all like culture um uh and um and the root of that, of course, we'll get into in this series is, um, goes all the way back historically to economics and racial science and things of that nature that has really polluted the minds of white people for a generation, for several generations, around um, you know, what um, makes a black person valuable, um, what makes a brown person valuable. And so, um, yeah, I mean, why in 2018 are we drawing these really significant um, types of conclusions about the quality and the value of a of a person, um, not not only if they're black or brown, um, but but as a black person, I know that 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 value judgment is is coming from our side as well to white people. And why are we doing that? And I think that's that that might be a little bit easier to understand if you believe a certain thing about the history. But but I am curious, Mark, what what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question that we could just uh, oh my gosh talk about for so long is why do we misunderstand each other and i think that for me like for one i think we just survival mechanisms require us to kind of make snap judgments about someone else because our survival depends on it right like i have to look at you and i have to determine whether you are someone who i can trust for safety because if you if i if you aren't someone i can trust based on my snap judgment based on these these Reactions that have been honed through millions of years of evolution, um, then that's going to result into bad things for me, right? So I think that, uh, I think it's our biological impulses. I think we, our brains, just as we get older, we grow accustomed to what we're familiar with. And, it you know, that plays out even going to the supermarket or going to restaurants where we get our favorite items and we're less likely to kind of branch out to something that's a little unfamiliar. I think that that's what's occurring and I think that and and just because we have that that explanation is understanding that being able to understand that means now that we have to be able to override it. So for me, how that played out was, you know, in Arlington, Texas, where I mentioned earlier, very diverse part of the country, I was one of those guys who had uh, very diverse sort of. Friends, and even actually coming out to D.C., it's kind of made me a little uncomfortable because it's a little white out here. Um, but I had black friends. I had Hispanic friends. I had Indian friends. I had women friends. And uh, across all kinds of diverse backgrounds, including liberal, Democrat, Republican, Christian, non-Christian. And so for me, I didn't have any animus from my perspective toward skin color, right? These people were still in my context. They were still in the city where I grew up. Um, They were still in my school so we had all these contacts. We were rubbing up against each other there and sharing life together in those ways. What really perplexed me was the Black Lives Matter. Uh, What really perplexed me was Ferguson and seeing these images on the news where They weren't that wasn't my context um they it was more of a cultural misfit than uh than a skin color thing but still at the end of it you know that could have been influencing my perplexion where i didn't understand why after police shootings uh people would riot in their communities or destroy uh you know buildings set fires to cars in their communities i just that was something that i didn't understand uh and it's something that i've since learned you know, I don't even have to go that far in my own life to understand why someone would, you know, break something in my bedroom, for example, if I was growing up, or if I got even in a heated conversation with parents, and I didn't feel like I had a a healthy outlet that I could express myself or my my grievances, you know, you might go in your room, and you might throw things off the dresser. Um, So that's a a natural reaction, not one that is black or white, that's universal. Um, And so that's something now that I understand that if you don't If you feel like you're oppressed and you don't have healthy outlets, it's going to come out in only two ways. One, you're going to talk it through or it's going to manifest itself through your violence, uh, like we saw in in some of those riots. And that's where I say, okay, then what's my role in this? I need to I need to listen to see what hurts are actually occurring
0: in that community. Yeah, well, I mean. Yeah, I have a lot of things that I can say about that. I mean, I I think uh, w- what happened in Ferguson, or, you know, you think about some of the other police shootings, you know, that have just brought so much anger and rage out of the black community, um, you know, for us, these are not things that are new, you know, uh, they've just reached a tipping point for us. And... Um, and if I'm being honest, it's been at a tipping point for a really long time, um, and I'm just glad that there's some level of activism going on. Now, you know, people ask me the question all the time, you know, like, you know, what's, what's the validity of Black Lives Matter? And I'm like, well, are you talking about the movement or are you talking about the idea? And... You know, and these are from my white friends that I've had a long time, (laughs) that I've had for a very long time, who uh, think that I'm the safe black person and and that they can ask me anything, um, and that uh, really what they're looking for is for me to agree with them. Like, they need some validation for their perspective, um, either because they're conservative politically or just, like, conservative socially, and just really uncomfortable with the race situation and what's happening there. So, I mean what I tell people is like, look, like you don't necessarily have to agree with the edifices of the movement. You don't necessarily have to agree with the expression of the movement. Sometimes it is very angry. Sometimes it's, I mean, you're seeing the the rawness of what um, the black experience has um, in in America for hundreds of years has, has really um, how it's manifested in, in, in a today generation voice. And, um, and I know that's really uh, like an uncomfortable thing for white people to watch, be part of the majority, especially if black people are saying, it's your fault, <laughs> you know, that you're actually part of the problem, even if you weren't there when slavery occurred, um, that you're definitely benefiting, you know, from that perspective, benefiting, um, uh, you know, from slavery and the economic benefit and the social benefit of what that means for you today. But um, the other thing that's that's really hard, I think, for, for the majority is the idea Um, the reality that just because we say that black lives matter, that doesn't mean we're saying that white lives don't. It doesn't mean we're saying that Latino lives don't. But we are saying that there is a history that has to be addressed here. And if we are not willing to hear really between those lines, but instead be defensive, then we won't get anywhere in this conversation. Um, Whiteness doesn't need to be defended. Um, Blackness doesn't need to be defended, except in the context where we haven't, had an equality of rights for a number of years, hundreds of years that has kept us from progressing at the same level of equality of opportunity of anyone else. And there are reasons for that. And no one is disconnected from that reason, you know, or or, or from those reasons, whether you're white or whether you're black, if you're an immigrant, you're not disconnected from it either. It's a part of the history of this country. And as a part of the present manifestation what's going on in this country. I mean, for, for me personally, like, it was 2017. I was in Colorado Springs in a Marshalls, and a 65-year-old or so white man walked down the aisle toward me while I was in the checkout line, stopped, looked me up and down. I don't know him. I don't know who he is, and looked at me, and he called me a nigger to my face. And what am I supposed to do with that? You know, I'm an educated black man. Um, I'm there with a white family that are friends of mine, and he didn't stop to consider what my resume was. He didn't stop to consider um, what those relationships were and what they meant to me. He didn't stop to consider my faith, my history, anything about my story. He saw one thing. He saw my color, the color of my skin. And what I think is really interesting is that when I have these conversations with white people about, hey, can't we just move on from this? What you're basically asking me to do is to trust you That this conversation doesn't matter, that you're going to treat me differently, and you just want me to blind trust you, blind faith, that after 400 plus years of dealing with this, um, when you've economically benefited from some of the choices, and black people have been living on a shoestring, predominantly and disproportionately in several areas, whether it's criminal justice or welfare reform or whatever it is, that I'm just supposed to take your word for it that you give a damn about me. Why? Why should I trust you? And why should I trust that you care? I don't trust that you hate. I don't think you hate us. I don't I just don't think you're thinking about us. I think that you're content to not have to look. I think that you're content because you have the option to not see it or to see your connection to it historically. And, you know, the biblical, um, like, approaches and implications to generational responsibility are on the back of white people in this country today, whether or not you were a part of slavery or not.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, what, for white people, um, and I'm speaking kind of from my perspective here, I think what occurred was, or has occurred over the last... 20 30 40 years since civil rights era is there's been kind of this i guess faux truce or um one-sided truce where we white people were the only ones who were aware of it uh, because again i grew up in a diverse part of texas and so I, you know I'm not the I would I would hear about hateful things that occurred like that man in Marshalls, and I'm like, you know I'm not that dude uh, I'm not walking around I'd, calling people the n-word um, and so I'm not, not the problem. yeah yeah so like, I'm not, so yeah, not the problem. yeah yeah so I'm not the problem I'm not the one hosing down people in the street like we saw with civil rights which was very palpable right like that racism was very palpable and violent and ugly and hateful and so You know, these conversations, race, weren't conversations that occurred in my household, Um, but I've talked to friends who I went to school with since then, and they're like, absolutely, like conversation was very much something that they were aware of growing up, and I just, I wasn't aware of it. Um, And so I think that this conversation is kind of giving a green light to white people to examine their whiteness where they felt like that they shouldn't, where it was kind of icky. and. And for me, too, I, I worked at a water park uh, lifeguarding for several years in, in college. And one of the things that kind of just slapped me upside the face was, you know, it it's a kind of a stereotype that uh, black people have trouble swimming. And that was evident when I was a lifeguard. Most of my saves uh, included jumping in the water to to. Bring out, pull out someone uh, who is black, and so that w- that struck me because now we have a gold medalist who's a, a black woman, uh, the first gold medalist in swimming, and that was incredible because I grew up going to the pool, I grew up learning how to swim because it was something that my parents grew up doing, and it was because they had access to pools, and so now you see this re- this reverberates from. Jim Crow era, where black people didn't have access to pools, and so that's not a summertime activity that is is familiar to them as it was to my family, and that's something that still in 2018 has reverberated from Jim Crow and is very palpable. So we'll we'll talk about systems a little bit more in different episodes. Uh, we won't get into that now, but um, that systemic issue that you know white people don't really understand what that means, um, we'll, we'll unpack in
0: future. Yeah, it's really mind blowing, really, when you think about it, because I mean for most white people it's a generalization of course a generalization you don't have to consider it you don't have to think about those things that are unique you know to the black experience um, that you don't have to necessarily deal with you know sort of the detriment you know of Jim Crow and the generational impact of that and we got a few things going on here when it comes to something like swimming I mean my gosh I mean like the middle passage for one like do you think we want to touch water I mean it's so strange you know I mean I think that while so many of us you know are just so like are now like finally coming out of it and learning how to swim because it's like oh you need to learn how to swim so that if you ever find yourself in a body of water you know, you can live, you know, I mean, I think that that's so fascinating, right? Like, that's a basic thing, you know, for most white families, you know, um, it's an anomaly if you don't know how to swim. I mean, I remember watching like, this movie with like, um, John Wayne, you know, I think it was like, uh, um, I don't know, whatever the name of it was. And, and he was teaching this kid how how to swim and how he taught him to swim is he picked him up and he threw him in a body of water. And that's how we learned how to swim. You know, those were not things that we didn't even have the access to that opportunity. Like, there was no person that was going to touch us. Literally touch us. If you were a white swim instructor, you couldn't touch us in the 1950s. You you wouldn't even want to put your hands on our bodies. You didn't want to be in the same place as us. And generationally, like, imagine my my parents don't know how to swim we barely we never went to the beach growing up you know um i didn't learn how to swim until i was 16 years old and even now i'm not that great and it was a white friend of mine who was a swimmer um you know because and that's what he did in college actually went on to do that pretty successfully you know and and even now people still need to throw me into a body of water because i'm a little triggered by it you know just because i'm like i'm not going to make it because these white folks are not going to save me you know i think it's like crazy just, just to think about it but i think that that gets to this overarching point about the opportunity as a part of the white privilege, right? If you believe in white privilege, I don't care if you do, or if you don't. Um, I mean, I do kind of care if you don't, but I think you need to (laughs) do some research on that if you don't. Um, But um, the opportunity to not have to think literally about things, but you can afford to be an ideologue, but you can't afford to actually be a pragmatist when it comes to race relations. And, you know, I had A very close white friend of mine actually say to me not not long ago um, you know something very philosophical and smart to himself Um, say this to one of his only black friends um, that I I think he says in quotations um, that um, that anti-racism is becoming the new racism and so, when I'm saying to myself, what in the heck does that even mean? And then, as I started to unpack it, what he's saying is that the social movement, like Black Lives Matter, you know, things like that, you know, that, have, that do have some vitriol to the white experience and toward white America. Um, he's saying that that's a form of racism and that it's turning into the normal. That, you know, for one form of racism, white people towards black people, they were going to exchange that um, black people towards white people and that now we need to protect ourselves, white people have to protect themselves against racism from black people. I thought that was really interesting because um, are you really protecting yourselves from racism? Are you protecting yourselves from your opportunity being shared? Are you protecting yourselves from having to have this conversation? In fact, this is proven, I think in this experience, because he went to his job that day and didn't have to look at What I have to see every day as a social worker, which is kids who can't get out of a cycle. They can't get out of a system of depravity or poverty. I have to deal with, you know, one in two black men, um, like um, possibly being. really diagnosed with HIV or AIDS you know um, I have to deal with um, black women you know and heart disease and stress that come from comes from from that or single motherhood and lack of marriages and um, and uh, the promiscuity and the black community I mean all of these different issues that if you're talking to a white person about these things they would say well it's your personal responsibility why are you doing that you're so irresponsible black people you're so unintelligent black people you're so nothing black people without understanding that the reason why we're not empowered to actually do something about those things, one of the reasons why is because of a 400-year-plus history of oppression in this country that has not given us resources to things that could help us out of those systems. Now, i 'm not saying that we don't have responsibility in those things, but let's just look at it from a thirty thousand foot view here like Imagine if your family went through that for a hundred years, that type of oppression being withheld resources, not, not not being able to learn how to read, not being able to learn how to swim or basic survival things like what what would your life be like today if that were the case, but you don't have to consider it you can You can afford to be an ideologue on the issue of race and not have to actually deal with the consequences that are currently happening in the country today. I think that's an unfortunate thing. And it does make me angry, frustrated, maybe not angry, but definitely frustrated that I have to continue to explain this to white people all the time.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you just basically unpacked our outline for the next like six months uh you touched on a lot one yeah good uh one thing that i want to hit real quick uh before kind of moving on to closing it up is you know that justification white people that discomfort that they experience one thing that you can do with that is um to ease that discomfort that you're feeling is we tend to justify our position and our inaction and so we're gonna have a, a whole series dedicated to justification and just being justified uh, because that's one way that we try to to absolve our responsibility in in the conversation and so uh, that's one thing that I would encourage if we get you know anything out of this is just to kind of lean in and listen and hear um, and try to look to see where your your biases might be playing a factor doesn't mean you're hateful uh, by any means but it it is something that if someone a brother or sister is hurting Um, you know, they're not just saying that because they're trying to to get a one-up on a conversation. Uh, So I think, where does that lead us now then? Like, Brandon, where do we go from here?
0: Where do we go from here? Mm. Title of a Martin Luther King Jr. book. Where do we go from here? Well, he's dead 50 years ago. We just had an anniversary Um, honoring Martin Luther King Jr. and people like him, Malcolm X and the like. Um, Where do we go from here, Mark? I think you said it. I think that there's a listening that that needs to happen from white people to black people. And I also think that one of the things that we're going to have to do in the context of this series is actually have a really hard confrontation with whiteness and what whiteness is. And I don't mean white people, but I mean whiteness as a construct. Whiteness as something um, that is a part of racial science that is historical. um, Knowing that from our biology, we are 99.9% the same. And in that little area, that little window where we're different is where our skin color is. That's where it lives. And what we've learned to do because of the formation of the economic structure of this country is that we have learned to agree with something that someone told us hundreds of years ago about who we are and about who people of different colors are and how we've rated them. So what we need to do, we need to look at the history of this country, we need to look at it for real, encourage people to look for themselves. We're going to say some things. I'm going to say some things. Look, 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 like I said, I'm not an expert. Um, I just know things that I know. But there's so much to know, and there's such a range of, of experience there, if you're black or brown or even white, a range of experiences that we have to look at. And not one person corners the market. We're just talking from our experience. So we're going to listen to each other, and we're going to hammer this thing out relationally, but we're going to talk about some history and about Thomas Jefferson. Oh, we're, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about him. We're definitely going to get into Thomas Jefferson as a framer of the Constitution and what he meant when he said all men are created equal. Well, who was a man? And who did he consider to be a man and who were the people that were the abolitionists of the day that were fighting him and saying you need to actually count these people as real people these black and brown people as human beings and he wasn't going to do it and so let's talk about that history let's be real about it let's confront whiteness not in shame but in reality and say you know we have to move this thing forward together and the sweet irony of the entire thing I don't know how sweet it is, but, but it is a sweet irony, um, is that even if you're black and brown in this country, we cannot afford to kill off all the white people. It will never happen. That's that's not what our goal is. That's not what our heart is. We, we we can't look at anger and frustration with the last 400 years or so and say, gosh, our lives would be so much easier if they weren't here. That's not going to get us anywhere. Um, we can't go back to Wakanda. That's not what it is. You know, we're not Black Panthering our lives right now. That's that's all fiction. Um, although I'm really interested in Black futurism. I think it'd be great to go back to a real Wakanda one day. Um, but I do think that we, we have to look at the reality and the irony of the situation is that if we're going to become more equal and have equality of opportunity and equity and it's going to take out of volition white people in this country being unafraid less afraid to share what they have To actually give and be generous with what they have so that we can have a changing of the system, and a changing of the systemic oppression that's been going on um, in this day and in this age.
1: Yeah, uh, and I'm glad you don't want to off white people because uh, I'm white and I kind of like who I am. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think uh, you must have been peeking at the episode notes because next week, uh, unless something changes, we're going to be un- unpacking whiteness and and trying to understand what whiteness is and so that'll that'll be fun um so each episode we want to kind of leave you with a call to action uh this week we want to leave you with a couple of questions one is what are things that um that have where you've been misunderstood where where things the world has misunderstood about you and then second part to that is where have you misunderstood something about the world somebody else in the world a people group or whatever the case is doesn't have to be race-based that could be anything uh you can misunderstand something about the texas rangers um but uh, just just go through that mental exercise, and uh, and a couple of notes. Here's some ground rules. We touched on some things were uh, a little political, and that's going to be natural. That's going to be uh, there's going to be overlap that occurs there. Um, this is a nonpartisan po- podcast. Um, it's impartial. We're not going to talk through policy prescriptions. There are going to be political things that are raised up just by nature of the conversation but by no means are we trying to prescribe anything if you're liberal or conservative all we hope that you get out of this podcast is more context for framing your own policy prescriptions and that's uh that's our only hope in all of this um but other than that brandon do you have any parting words before we go
0: nope let's get it done let's have the conversation
1: y'all all All right we'll get her done uh thanks for tuning this time and we will see you at the same time next week Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, and then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you had know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.